to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, a man by the name of Peter Bregman was shipwrecked on the remote, deserted Tongan Island out in the Pacific Ocean. For years, Bregman lived and survived alone on a tiny little speck of land. Miraculously, however, he was rescued when a ship passing by noticed a fire he had made. Rescuers quickly sent ships, little boats, to retrieve Mr. Bregman. As the boats were leaving the island, one of the rescuers noticed the little huts that Bregman had built, and they inquired about them. And Bregman pointed to one, and he said, that little one right over there, well, that's, that's my house. I had a little bedroom and a little cooking area. I even built myself a little chair where I would imagine every night I was reading books from my library. That bigger one over there, well, that was my church. I know I was the only one on the island, but I still felt it was important to keep up with my discipline of worship and community, even if that was just me. At that moment, one of the other rescuers noticed another hut, and they said, well, what about that one next to it? That one seems quite large as well. And he says, ooh, I don't like to talk about that one. You see, that's my old church. (laughs) But I don't go there anymore. They're nothing but a bunch of grumpy heretics. Unity. One of the most challenging responsibilities we have as believers is remaining united with each other. Now I know, having made that statement, some of you would like to argue with me about making such a strong assertion, to which I say, well, now I know what side of the line you're on. Unity has always been a real challenge for the church. Jesus warned us in the book of Editions, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there will always be at least three or four opinions. And that has made unity tough. But truly, we know that unity amongst believers is one of Jesus' greatest desires. In his final prayers that we see in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. A united church is at the heart of what Jesus desires for us. Over and over in in Scripture, we see the command to remain united, remain together, share the same mindset, stay in one accord with one another. And what do we find over and over? People who struggled to live into that calling, a struggle that we still wrestle with today. Martin Luther King Jr. once famously said that Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. And I think that statement still rings true very much today. And not just when it comes to race, but also denomination, tradition, economic status, political leanings, education, so on and so forth. If we can argue about it, we will divide over it. We are a divisive people. We are a divided church. And that's not a good thing. It's not. We hear a lot about unity out in the world today, about how we can craft and maintain and cultivate unity. And I fully admit that it's a messy subject, but it's the subject I want us to look at this morning. For the next few weeks, our Sunday epistle readings are going to come from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a a letter written by a pastor named Paul who had planted a church just a few years prior to writing this letter. It's a church located on the Greek coastal city of Corinth. 
The letter is addressed to a group of people who really were struggling with unity. As we read throughout the letter, we find that the problem was that this group of Christians were letting unessential issues divide them. They were getting into fights over little trivial matters, such as what color the church carpet should be, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Every good Christian knows it should be red. It's the blood of Christ. But they were dividing over this. They were arguing about what kind of food a Christian could and could not eat. They were arguing about who was most important in the church. They were even arguing about who was the best pastor. So some of them would say, Father Chase, he's my guy, he's my priest. And somebody else would say, oh, come on now, Deacon Bree's got the better jokes, she's my gal. Somebody else would pipe in, yeah, but, but, but Father John, he can still skateboard, that guy's cool. Somebody else would chime in, y'all are crazy, Father Jim's the man. He's got that Clint Eastwood with a collar look going on. It was these type of ancillary issues that were tearing the church apart. On the flip side, Paul says that the essential issues were going unchecked. People were getting a little too friendly with the church wine and getting drunk during church services. Believers were suing one another. Other believers were caught in extramarital affairs with their stepmoms. At least I'm hoping it's the stepmom. Otherwise, it's a really interesting story. And so Paul writes this letter to say, y'all need to knock it off. You need to stop that. That's not Christian. That's not what Jesus wants from us. That's not what Jesus desires for us. And it's a letter that still has much to say to us today. Because like the Corinthians, I find that the church often divides over unessential things and lets the essential things go unchecked. Culturally, Corinth is very similar to our city as well. We share a lot of similarities. It was a major business hub. Corinth was a, a double seaport town. And basically what that means is that a lot of trade and commerce happened at, at, at Corinth. People would travel all over to Corinth to try to make it big. The result was very similar to our own city. It became a city of haves and have-nots. There were educated and uneducated alike. People lived in grand, glorious homes while others slept on the streets. It was a grand and glorious city, a city of, of medicine, research, industry. There were great theaters erected, which attracted immensely talented people. There were marvelous pagan temples built. But it was also a deeply broken city. And what we find in Corinthians is that brokenness crept into this church. The social privilege, the big wallets, the influence, the success, it all seemed to begin to influence the culture of the believers. And so what we find is they, they began to increasingly place their faith in their social status, in their titles, in their connections, in their intellect, in their eloquence, rather than in the one person who wanted to tear all those things down and pull them together. The result was a very divided and divisive church. Now here's the thing, Corinth wasn't exact, exactly against unity. They, they weren't opposed to unity. In fact, in some ways they tried to manufacture, create their own unity. The, the problem was they went about it with the wrong motivation and the wrong method. What we read about is that they tried to force doctrinal opinions and, and, and views upon one another as a way of manufacturing 
unity. But the result was it just created more divisions and cliques. As Jonathan read for us, it, it, the Corinthians were saying, some of them were saying, I belong to Paul, and others were saying, I belong to Apollos, while others would say, I, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. Another group would sit on their high horse and say, well, I'm a Jesus-only kind of person. You all are crazy. It didn't matter which clique you belonged to. The result was the same. There was a spirit of arrogance within each group, and it was dividing them. And so Paul wrote this, saying, knock it off, guys. Yes, the Christian life is meant to be lived out in the context of community, a common unity with one another. But unity does not come by the force of one's will or by asserting one's opinion upon another. That's not how unity is crafted. Unity, as Paul explains, is only possible through the grace of Christ. A grace that reveals our need for one another. A grace that reveals our dependence on Jesus. He explains in verse 13 that Jesus was not crucified for one person or for one issue. Rather, his crucifixion and his resurrection draws all people together, the whole body of Christ. He goes on later to say the, the rest of the Corinthian bourgeoisie, they, they might think this is madness, that this is foolishness. But for those of us who are being saved by the cross of Christ, that is the power of God. That is the power of their unity. And it's the power of our unity as well. You see, we can't muster up unity. We can't will unity into place. I, I can't preach a sermon so convicting, so, so compelling, that, that it will unite us despite all of our differences. That's not how unity works. Unity is only possible when we're individually and when we're corporately building and focusing our lives on that on the cross. I know that sounds simple. So simple it may sound cliche, but unity is only possible when we're building and focusing our lives on Jesus. In fact, as we look throughout church history at the disunity that has been plaguing the church, we see that at the heart of each of these fractions, factions, are lives not in tune with the gospel. Lives that are not in tune with Jesus' value and his way of living. I like how A.W. Tozer describes this in his book, The Pursuit of God. He, he kind of describes it like this. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. In a similar manner, so 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and strive by their own strength and merit for closer fellowship. Despite all of our differences, despite all of our challenges, unassailable unity is possible, but it's only possible when our lives are built and focused on Jesus. Kind of reminds me of something that happened while I was at seminary. Trinity, which is located in Western PA, right outside of Pittsburgh, attracts a great number of foreign students. We get students from, uh, from areas of Africa and Asia and South America. 
And when students from those regions come to the Holy Land of Pittsburgh, they usually feel a little bit like a fish out of water. My, my th thought behind all this is that the, the, the beauty of all of the gray days with the constant rain and the gridlock traffic and the very famous Pittsburgh Yinzer accent, it's just too much for them to bear, and so they're overwhelmed. Our job as locals is we were to work hard to welcome these new students into their community, make them feel part of the family. One student, however, a guy named Sun from Myanmar, was really having a difficult time. He had just arrived, and he was immediately regretting his decision. It took 24 hours of flying for, him, for Sun to get to Pittsburgh. That's just flying, 36 hours of travel altogether. He was a fish out of water, truly. He lamented that he struggled to understand the people, to understand the culture, to understand the pace of life. He lamented that people couldn't understand him. He felt alone and isolated. He had no friends. He left behind his family, his community. We just sat there with him, not knowing what to say. We were first-year seminarian students. We hadn't taken pastoral care yet, so we were useless in that sense. <laughs> but that's when we heard the evening bells. And I remember a guy named John Hall, with a very soothing British accent, looked at Son and he says, Son, come pray with us. We made our way over to the chapel where we began to say evening prayer together. And Son really struggled to read the English prayer book. But I very distinctly remember at one point looking over when we started to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I remember Son took a deep breath, and it was the first time I saw a little smile on his face, and he joined us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I very much remember feeling God's presence in that room at that moment. There we were, 50, 60 seminarians from different races, nationalities, political leanings, educational upbringings, cultures. But at that moment, we were united, not by color or nationality or politics, but in a much deeper and more important level, in the truth and the spirit of God. We were one. Unity is not built by pushing conformity upon one another, but unity is built by sticking to the essentials. And what Paul tells us in Corinthians is that the essentials are the grace of God, the cross of Christ, and the Holy Spirit living within each and every one of us. That's our tuning fork. The grace of God, the cross of Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's how we achieve harmony. There are things that we can sway from in this church. There are ways that we can differ with one another. But we cannot sway from that. We cannot move away from those. Because those are the things that define and empower us and empower our unity. That is the foundation on which this church is built. And it's the foundation we need to continue to build this church upon, even if we want to kill each other at times. Not that that ever happens. <laughs> it would be my hope 
that as this nation becomes increasingly divided and divisive, that Christ's church would be an oasis in that desert of chaos. That this would be a place, a church, so united in heart and mind that nothing this world throws at us could divide us. Years ago, I heard a priest talking about his long tenure in the one and only parish he served at. I was intrigued by what he said. He said, there's a lot of good that can come from shepherding a church for a long time. After that kind of time, you become family together. You become a family with all of the joys and all of the sorrows. You get bound up together. You go through a lot of stuff together. You, you, you worship together. You kneel week after week and you take communion together. You have meals in your parish hall together. You, you, you take classes together. You, you discuss important things. You pray. You, you serve the community. You go to weddings and funerals and baptisms. You get mad at each other. You forgive each other. You persevere year after year because you are a family united in Christ. I, I just, I loved that. It is stuck with me. He sold it so well that someone asked, well, what's the bad part? And he said, well, you know, you get mad at each other. You fight one another. Inevitably, somebody wants blue carpet instead of red. No, he said, truly, here's the thing. When, when you get bound up like that, and you're together over and over again through the years. You learn to love one another in a very deep, intimate way. Even if the person sitting next to you in your pew is very different from you. Even if the person across the aisle is very different than us. We learn to love one another and trust one another. Which means we become vulnerable with one another. Which also means that we can hurt one another. We can disappoint one another. We can get mad at one another. But... What we'll discover is that this church family is unlike anything that this world has to offer. That's what Paul was trying to steer the Corinthian church towards. A community so centered around Christ, so concerned for one another, that nothing could tear it apart. And that is my hope for us. It's easy for the church over the course of time to become divided. The only way we can persevere is if we're united in that, in the cross. That's part of the reason why it hangs in the center of our community. Because those, there's going to be times when we get mad at one another, and we get all uppity, and we start riding our high horse. And then at the end of the week, we have to come here. We have to kneel down before the cross. And we're reminded that just as much as that other person is a sinner, so are we. I like crosses, but if you get to know me, I'm very fond of crucifixes. In my office, above my prédu is a crucifix. And I like to look at Christ on the cross because it reminds me of the kind of love we're to have for one another. Sacrificial love. Love that's hard. Love that's challenging. Love that says, I'm going to be willing to let go of some things for my brother or sister in the Lord. Love that says, I'm going to be willing to let some things die inside of me for my brother or sister in the Lord. God has done some wonderful things in calling this church together. He has drawn together a wonderful body of people. And 
Who knows what the future stands before, what future stands before us? I think there are some marvelous, amazing things that we can do out in this city of Phoenix and beyond. But none of those things matter if we are not solidly, if we are not thoroughly united in Christ together. Let's keep that as our foundation, and this church will thrive. Amen.